This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer on the show, taking a story walk. Growing up in the digital age and tweens fight for ice time, but we begin with clearing the air. Wildfires are still burning out of control across Canada, and the devastating impact is being felt on so many levels, including the air we breathe. Toronto had the worst air quality in the world not long ago, and climate experts are suggesting this may be a threat all summer long. Environment Canada senior climatologist David Phillips has seen it all over the past 50-plus years that he's been on the weather watch. David joins us now with the science behind the fire smoke and how weather plays a role in the health of our air quality. Welcome to the show, David. Always so great to have you with us. Well, what a great introduction. I, <laughs> I so was so glued to what you were saying, and I think you everything was right, and and always a, a treat to, to join you in any kind of conversation. And you know, I said in that introduction that I thought you'd seen it all, but have you ever seen anything like this fire smoke that's blanketing southern Ontario off and on and really scaring a lot of people? Yeah, you know, I've been in the business for a long time, more than a half a century, uh, 55 years, I think I've counted. And um, no, I've seen a lot of weather, weird, wild, and wacky, but I think, um, I always say weather, you know, repeats itself, but it's always different. Every bout of weather has a different personality and character, and certainly this fire season has so much to to exclaim about. I mean, first of all, I guess the biggest uh, uh, um, superlative is the fact that it's the most devastating in terms of area burned uh, in Canada. I mean, and we're, we're only into early July. I mean, we've had maybe a, a month and a few days in or under our belt, and we see fires that are raging in Canada in, uh, in September uh, and even in British Columbia in October. So we've got a long ways to go. It kind of reminds me, though, I mean, I'm, I, I love weather history, and I remember back in reading about occasions in the past where uh, a f- wildfires killed people. I mean, that was, you rarely hear of anybody dying from a, a forest fire now, but really back then, and it was all about the flames. The flames killed people. 211 people in Matheson, uh, Ontario, and another uh, about five years later in Cochrane, uh, just hundreds of people died because of, of, of the flames. But what now what we're seeing is that it's the smoke that causes the problems and for good reasons because we don't really know what the health effects are and um, and, and certainly the longer you breathe that smoke um, and pile up those those smoky hours well the more more impactful that will be from a health point of view and everybody it's not just uh, you know people who suffer from respiratory and cardiovascular issues it's infants who don't who breathe very quickly and don't have the lung capacity uh, seniors yes when they have lower lung capacity but even the fit and athletic people can wheeze and gasp under these kind of of smoky skies from from a country that is well known globally as one of the the purest air sheds in the world and yet you're right we i think toronto one day last week was leading the world in a uh, you know and not a good way and also then a year a week before it was montreal and then ottawa with numbers that would just be it'd be like smoking three packs of cigarettes a day oh. if you had to put up with that kind of of smoke um for long bouts of uh, of time so david what 
role does weather play in distributing poor air quality or getting rid of poor air quality? Can you help us understand that part of it? I think the weather is important and for for start helping to start the fires and 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 getting them going and raging and becoming the big monsters that they that they are. I mean, what we saw this year was a very early start and it was almost Canada dry from coast to coast. Uh, it was really started in Alberta and spread to Nova Scotia and Quebec and the other Atlantic uh, other um, uh, prairie provinces in Ontario uh, and just northeastern Ontario. Not northwestern Ontario, and so British Columbia and the northwest areas. So nobody's been left out in the cold on this one. We've all been affected by these kind of runaway kind of of, uh, of smoky skies, and and one of the reasons was a very a very dry spring in Canada. Uh, really, March, April, May were uh, were record dry in some areas. We've never seen such little precipitation in a hundred years. And so really the fires had, and, and really to, to have fires, there's always three things that people talk about. The ignition, you need kind of people to start the fires or lightning to start it. You need the fuel the dry vegetation that becomes like kindling, and we had that with such dry conditions and warm conditions. And then you need the weather to kind of, um, uh, certainly from lightning can start it, but also it can spread through winds and, and having low humidity. I mean, high humidity is good uh, for helping to quell uh, forest fires, but dry conditions, and particularly when you go from uh, a snow, from the snow melt, the period when the snow melts, to a period when before the trees green up. And that period is such a, a long period, what we call the spring gap, and, and it really was wide this year, and so no wonder these fires could get going. I think for me, and being in the business for a long time, what surprised me uh, was certainly the, the coast-to-coast element of this, but also the size of these suckers. Yeah. I mean, we're not, we're, we're not getting records in terms of the number of fires. In fact, I think right now we've, we've seen in Canada about, um, you know, about um, uh, 3,500 fires. And, I mean, that's not even close to the 10 or 25-year average. But it's the size of these fires. They're massive. And, you know, it's hard to, to put them out. I mean, it's sort of like spitting on a campfire. If you expect to put one hose on a massive fire that's, that's uh, stretching across from one part of the province to, to the other. So my sense is weather has played a big role. Even climate change has. We talk about the longer terms in terms of, of getting trees to, to grow, uh, drying things out with greater evaporation, and then, and then of course, wind. We saw uh, derechos or, or winds that blow down trees, and then you've got that lumber that's sitting there and then dries out, and it's just becoming the kindling for the next year's uh, forest fire season. Wow. So, so weather is quite critical, but also it's... It is uh, uh, the ignition and fuel that, that can make up why this is the, the monster infernos that they are this year. David, it is the second weekend in July, July 8th and 9th weekend, and we're now past that heat and humidity that really had a grip on, yes. the, on southern Ontario this past week. We're back to more seasonal norms and uh, sunny skies and cooler nights. Should we be hoping for rain? Should we be hoping for that higher humidity that you mentioned that may actually work in our favor when it comes to poor air quality, trying to move it out, trying to get rid of it? What should we be hoping yeah. for this summer to try to deal weather-wise with, air, with the air quality that is just awful? 
Well, I think one of the real concerns that we saw with this particular bout of forest fires and smoke situations in June particularly um, was the fact that we were dealing with northerly uh, winds, winds blowing from the north, taking that smoke from around James Bay in Quebec and northeastern Ontario and blowing it down into the metropolitan areas of our our major cities and and then of course on into the united states with new york and philadelphia and chicago and detroit i mean everybody was looking canada way and not for a for a good a good reason so winds were and, and really at that time of the year you don't normally see northerly winds you see more southerly winds and when the winds shifted well, that improved the air quality, cleaned out the air sheds. The other thing is rain. You're absolutely right. Rain scrubs and, and cleanses the air and helps to take out some of those those uh, like the, 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 the cinders and the and the and the and the chemicals that are released in a in a forest fire situation. So my sense is we still have a long ways to go. We haven't heard from areas that are traditionally fire hotspots like um, British Columbia a bit there, but not not as much. That usually comes later in August and, and September. And then also northwestern Ontario, been very wet and uh, in the spring, and so those fires haven't got going. And also in Manitoba, Saskatchewan. So, hey, there are areas that last year we had one of the worst forest fire on record occurred in Newfoundland. And they, we haven't even heard about any fires in Newfoundland this year. So there's time for the forest to, to be set ablaze, whether it be from lightning and, and or it be from people. And that's the thing also I think we have to be concerned about is that people do start forest fires. Maybe they have want jobs to fight fires. That's been an accusation. But also just carelessness, not putting out campfires, all-terrain vehicles, uh, dirt bikes, uh, uh, more mechanization into the forest, and 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 that gives you more sparks, and uh, and and uh, and that is a tinderbox situation that could engulf into to many more uh, forest fires before the snows start flying. Wow! So we may need to be a little more respectful of our environment, and it sounds like it could be a while before we can all breathe easy again. David Phillips, Environment Canada senior climatologist, thank you so much for giving us your time. Well, then, nice to be with you, and I, I hope we can uh, sort of uh, convince many Canadians about the seriousness of, of forest fires and, and poor air quality, and uh, because it's a health concern for everybody, and it's something that is not going to go away. So should we be concerned about the air we breathe when the quality of it is at its worst due to wildfire smoke? Joining us now with the medical side of this air quality crisis and how it can affect our health short and long term is Dr. Victoria Chan, respirologist with Mackenzie Health. Dr. Chan, when Toronto's air quality registered as the worst in the world not long ago, what exactly were we breathing in on that day? Well, I... I think it was a mixture of our regular pollution plus, you know, the dust in the environment and this fine particulate matter, which actually came from the forest uh, fire. So burning wood, just like your fireplace or when you're burning a wood burning stove, uh, that fine particulate matter floats up in the air and is light enough at 2.5 microns that can actually float around with the air currents and then we can breathe it in. Now large particles are caught by our mucous membranes and the hairs in our nose, but the really fine ones get past that and it can go right down into the small pockets of the lung and enter the bloodstream. And these particles can be toxic to us. It can cause inflammation, oxidative stress, um, increased respiratory infection risk. 
So people with asthma, COPD, even heart disease need to be very careful because people even with plaques in their coronary arteries, it can actually disrupt those plaques and cause a heart attack. What about the rest of the population? You know, we think about our children going to outdoor camps all summer long. We think of construction workers and other people who have to work outdoors. They may not have any underlying conditions. What damage can this do to them short and long term? So short term, I'm guessing, um, would probably be very little uh, because it's short-lived. I'm hoping that this wildfire crisis will be over a couple of days or weeks. Um, Long term, we actually don't know because we don't have wildfires burning all the time, but people who are in that industry, like firefighters, um, people who work in forestry, for instance, um, I myself have seen uh, patients Uh, coming in with chronic respiratory conditions from chronic exposure, what we call biofuels. So whenever you burn anything up organic and then you inhale those fumes on a chronic basis, um, it can cause things like asthma and COPD. So people who never smoked can end up with lung diseases if they had smoked for decades. Dr. Chan, I hate to be the bearer of bad tidings, but unfortunately, the experts are predicting that this could last all summer long. So what effect might that have on people's lungs if it's constantly in our air, this this really toxic, poor air quality? No, that isn't good news. Uh, Indeed, um, if it's all summer long, we need to be careful. Try to stay indoors whenever there's a bad air quality warning. Um, You know, use that website, Environment Canada, which will tell us what the air quality is every day. Try to limit your activities to when it's low risk, one to three on the scale of 10. Or when it's hot, humid days, uh, try to bookend the activity from sunrise, 6 a.m. to 10 a.m., and then sundown from some, uh, 5 p.m. onwards when it's cooler in the day. But um, I think over water and after a rain is probably the safest time. And do you suggest that we get back to wearing masks as we did during the pandemic? Yeah, unfortunately, that is the way to go. Um, The masks that we were trained to wear during COVID, the surgical masks will cut out about 50% of the uh, particles, but because these particles are so small, it can get through those masks. So the N95s are the better ones. Um, So if anybody has any N95s left over from the COVID pandemic, they can use those or take the surgical mask and make sure it's fitted tightly around your face. That's better than not having one. As a parent, what advice do you give to them about their children, outdoor activities? You know, school's out and they want to be outside and playing and screaming and yelling and breathing hard. Our kids just want to have fun. What advice have you to parents when it comes to their children? Of course. Um, You know what? On the other side of me, I want people to be happy and outdoors and active. So I think for children who don't have any respiratory conditions or any chronic conditions, it's probably safe for them to be outdoors but limit the hours. So maybe not all day like we used to when we were were young and the summers were long. you know, just like in the morning and the evenings and also if the air quality is bad, find some good indoor activities to do like arts and crafts or cooking or baking or 
start cleaning up the house, maybe. <laughs> yeah, good luck with good luck with that, Doctor Chan. <laughs> I, I've noticed uh, with myself and with my friends and my coworkers that we each are experiencing this poor air quality slightly differently. But we all have had some side effects: a runny nose, a uh, little bit of a tickle in the throat. Uh, itchy eyes very similar to allergies is that a bad sign that we're that we're actually tasting the fire smoke and and coughing around it yeah i think a good rule of thumb is if you can smell the air um it's probably poor quality we shouldn't have to smell the air when it's low risk you can go outside you don't smell it if you can see it and smell it it's pretty thick so this is your body uh, reacting to it and doing what it's supposed to do. So a sore throat, the mucous membranes are catching the particles, your eyes are watering, washing out your eyes, um, and then it's giving you warning signs, like your body's starting to react to it. you got to get indoors or go to where it's windy or over a body of water. Does it concern you in, in the, the bigger picture when all is said and done and hopefully this writes itself in the next couple of months and we're back to fresher, cleaner air? But are you concerned about what the, the longer term effects might be that, that may pop up as a result of exposure to fire smoke this summer? Um, I think certainly for the unhealthy, for the chronic uh, condition population, we will definitely probably start to see the numbers uh, in hospitalizations, emergency visits, flare-ups of their chronic disease. I think probably long-term, if it's just a few months, we're probably going to be okay as a healthy pop the healthy part of the population. But I do worry about our sick um, and elderly and very young. Uh, how they're affected by it. Only time will tell. We'll have to look at the statistics after this year is over. Dr. Victoria Chan, respirologist with Mackenzie Health, thank you so much for your sage advice. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Next, the rise of road rage. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. Road rage is on the rise. Why is the question? Increased heat, poor air quality, construction everywhere, life pressures outside of the car that we bring to the driver's seat. Whatever the reason, road rage is extremely dangerous and the outcome can be life-altering, even life-ending. Julie Christensen is a psychotherapist who specializes in anger resolution. She's also written a book called The Rise of Rage. Welcome to the feed for the first time, Julie. Great to have you with us. It is so good to be with you. Thank you. So what fuels road rage? You know, it could be a whole bunch of things. And I guess we should maybe start by defining it. It's, you know, so it's acts of aggression that take place when we are in our cars or out on the road as pedestrians even. Um, we can experience, or as cyclists, we can experience incidents where people get angry and they, they act out on that anger while they're trying to get from point A to point B. I think that there are a lot of things that fuel road rage, uh, including the, the feeling that our goals are not being met or somehow that someone's interfering with our goal attainment, which would be to get to our destination safely. The feeling that rules have been violated or, 
or boundaries have been violated or that my needs or expectations of other drivers are not being met. Any of those things can happen pretty much every time we're on the road. And if it happens enough or we're just in the wrong headspace at the time, it could lead to a road rage incident. What you've described sounds like life, though, anywhere you go, your office, <laughs> yeah. you know, your, your school, your home, your, your wherever. What is it about being inside a vehicle that prompts this kind of reaction or overreaction? You know, I was having a discussion with someone yesterday about this, and we were talking about the way that the Internet has given us this sense of anonymity, and it empowers us to do things and to say things that we wouldn't normally say if we were face-to-face with someone. I think being in the car gives us a similar sort of false feeling of safety, that because I'm in my vehicle and my windows are up and I'm cursing to beat the band, but you can't hear me, and I'm honking on my horn and I'm doing whatever, that somehow my vehicle makes me safe. But that's not necessarily true. <laughs> and people have, you know, people have seen this when someone walks up to your car with a baseball bat and starts smashing the windows in or whatever. Your vehicle really doesn't provide you that sense of safety, but it is very much a, a false feeling of security that we have because we're inside our vehicle. And is there also a sense of power that may be misguided as well? Absolutely. Uh, your, your vehicle is a mode of transportation until you decide that you're going to use it to, to intimidate or possibly harm someone else. At that point, your vehicle becomes a weapon. And it's a big weapon. It's a fast-moving weapon, and it's not one that you have full control over. So if you start weaving in and out of traffic or swerving or, or doing whatever or, or tailgating, you might think that you're fully in control of that vehicle, but you can't control what other people do, and you could cause an accident. Yeah, you know, road rage can change lives. It can also claim lives. That's pretty dangerous, yeah. and it's and it's on the rise. Any idea why at this particular juncture, we're start just starting off the summer here in southern Ontario, you know, we've got some issues with air quality. We've got financial problems. Maybe we have problems in relationships at home, anything else that's sort of dragging behind us. What is it that's coming together in the perfect storm and, and causing an increase in road rage? My suspicion, and I don't have stats to back this up, but my suspicion is that the culture that we live in right now, this culture of wild accusation, unfounded reports of whatever and conspiracy theories, all these sorts of things, that people do feel empowered to be rude. And so, you know, when they're in their cars, they're certainly going to act that out. Here's what I find fascinating. Yes, there are people who are dealing with anger issues out there, and maybe it's not the best idea for them to be going behind the wheel when times are tough. But there's also that Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, where someone is a very calm, subdued individual. They get behind the wheel and they turn into a monster. Yeah, very true. And I, I have to admit that that has been me from time to time. <laughs> you know, every once in a while, I just, my temper just goes bananas and I find myself hollering at somebody because they're driving too slow or they're erratically, whatever it might be. And I think we're all um, certainly susceptible to that. Uh, it's important for us to always remember that our vehicle is a tool that enables us to get around it. We shouldn't be wielding it as been. And we certainly don't want to be the reason that anybody dies on the road today, whether that's a pedestrian, a cyclist, or another driver, or our children, or whatever. I've heard lots of horror stories about people who have, who have done foolish things when they were on the road. And they, you know, that action contributed to a loss of life. And you have to live with that for the rest of your life. Why, why take the risk just 
because you want to satisfy your need for immediate retribution. It's not worth it. So let's talk about coping strategies, whether you're the instigator or you're the the, the one who's being raged upon. Uh, what are some mm-hmm. of the coping strategies? The moment that you start to see th- that rage or you feel it in your system that you're going to explode behind the wheel, what do you do? First things first, take a deep breath. And this is anger management 101, even though I don't ascribe to anger management. The reason that we are instructed to take a deep breath is because in the moment that we go into fight or flight, our our limbic system, that old, ancient, instinctual part of our brain is what takes over decision. And the only way to to recover that amygdala hijacking, if you will, is to oxygenate your cerebral cortex. And you do that by taking deep breaths. And so you take a few deep breaths, you give your upstairs brain or your cerebral cortex a moment to recalibrate, and then ask yourself, what do I really want here? Because it would be nice, it would be fun, it would be so satisfying to flashback tires. But that's not going to get me to my destination safely. What it's probably going to end up is me getting charged with reckless endangerment and, you know, vandalism and all sorts of other things. So what is it that I really want? And how can I achieve that outcome in a way that doesn't create any kind of negative consequences for me or anyone else on the road? In your practice, have you found that after people take a deep breath when they're behind the wheel and things start to, to subside a little bit in their internal being, that if they have a mantra or they, they sing a song that is comfortable for them, that <laughs> helps bring them down? I mean, they sound so juvenile, those suggestions, but, but I, for one, have experienced that, and I do have a song that I sing if I start to feel in that road rage mood. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think people have to find the strategy that works for them. What I encourage people to do is to ask five key questions. What's happening? What does it mean? How do I feel? What do I want? What can I do to get my desired outcome? And what's the lifetime value of this event? And I've heard stories of clients that have been through my program, the Anger Solutions Program, that have stopped at at a stop sign, gotten out of their car, and started walking towards the vehicle in front of them so that they could pass that driver's lights out. Uh, they've got those questions going through their mind, and they're thinking, yeah, if I punch this guy, I'm going to get charged with assault. It's going to be the third for me. I'm going to end up in jail. And it's not really worth it. And by the time he gets to the car in front of him, he's saying, have a nice day, and going back to his vehicle and driving away. That's the power of just processing it through. And so taking a deep breath, oxygenating your brain, asking yourself quality questions and then following on an action that will keep you and other drivers safe that's the way to go anything you can do before you get in the car itself absolutely be very mindful you know Stephen Covey tells us to begin with the end in mind and I really believe that that is is true for when we're driving think about where you're going think about how long it's going to take for you to get there think about the kinds of things that might be happening in traffic because it's summertime there's lots of people on the road maybe you need to give yourself an extra half an hour or an extra 40 minutes so that you don't feel rushed and you won't be aggravated if someone is driving terribly slow or if there's an accident and you get stuck in traffic Um, plan ahead and also plan for how you're going to manage your emotional state, whether that is through those, that music that you love mm-hmm. or you're going to listen to an audio book. Make sure the kids have activities to do in the backseat so they're not bickering and asking, are we there yet every five minutes? You know, when my kids were younger, the way to get them quiet in the car on a road trip was to take them to McDonald's 
and buy them a milkshake. And they would get milk drunk in sugar coma from the milkshake, and they'd go to sleep. <laughs> and then we could drive very peacefully. They'd all be knocked out in the back seat. So... You know what I like about you best, Julie? You are a psychotherapist. You're extraordinarily gifted at that. You're an author. You're so many things, but you're also a real person. We just heard that. (laughs) Thank you, Julie, for everything. Psychotherapist who specializes in anger resolution and uh, the, the author of a book about to come out called The Rise of Rage, Julie Christensen. Thanks. Thank you so much. After the break, preparing for college and university life. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. Our next few stories focus on students and young adults. Kevin Frankish starts us off with the challenges they face online. We know that growing up in this digital age presents all sorts of challenges for youth and parents alike. Media Smarts Canada's Centre for Digital Media Literacy has released a report with observations and recommendations called The Young Canadians in a Wireless World Phase 4. Dr. Cara Buisson-Boivin is Director of Media Research at Media Smarts and joins me from Amherstburg, Ontario. Hi, Doctor. How are you? Hi, good. Thanks for having me. Uh, now, when we say Phase 4, Four, then this is part of uh, a larger uh, study? That's right. This is Canada's longest-running and most extensive examination of young people's lives online. We've been conducting this study that has both a focus group component and a survey component um, for over 20 years. It began in uh, 2000. Just really quickly, uh, I'm, I'm looking, first of all, at some of the observations that uh, it, it uh, the study is finding that young Canadians are informed and responsible digital citizens uh, so they know what they're doing for the most part um they expect more from platforms and uh, tech companies to actually help them feel included but not only included but safe and informed online yeah that's right i think um you know what's really inspiring from this research are the ways in which you know young canadians are taking steps to be both, as you mentioned, you know, responsible online, including navigating their safety and their well-being and their privacy, and also advocating for more, you know, from platforms, governments, you know, technology companies to, you know, create the kinds of spaces that they want to engage in online, spaces that are safe, spaces that are inclusive. I think with that said, it's really important to also acknowledge that from this study, in order for young people to do all of that, they need to have the support of adults in their lives, whether yeah. that's educators or parents and guardians, to help them, you know, navigate the various challenges that they're facing when they're online. Uh, therein lies the uh, the real uh, crux here of the report and the recommendations. Um, you're saying parents uh, should be supported with with better information on how to build this trust and and uh, and the rules. Yeah, I think one of the most fascinating findings from this study was that, you know, whether parents are engaging in a sort of um, controlling or surveillance-based approach to digital parenting, so, for example, spying on kids, primarily using technology to control, you know, and manage uh, device use, versus whether adults are taking a more sort of engaged supervision sort of uh, approaches of open communication 
has an, as a direct impact on whether young people will turn to adults for support. And so we found that adults that are taking this sort of buying control, you know, approach, mm-hmm. um, this has a negative backfire effect. It makes young people less likely to turn to adults for support. Um, and that's not to say that parental controls are bad or don't have their place. They do, especially for younger youth. But we would recommend that, you know, it's the way that those parental controls are used, that, you know, parents and guardians need to be very clear, very transparent with the young people in their lives, that, you know, they're going to use controls, the context in which mm-hmm. they are, and help them understand why, why you're using those. So the, the open communication is what I found interesting about this. Um, and, and you're right. I mean, we know that, that people, you know, youth, and, and we did it when we were kids. If a parent is, is sort of saying, you know, you can't do that, mm, you kind of want to do it. So, But at least if you have open communication, if they're going to be online, they're going to at least be a little bit open with you if you're more open with them. Yeah, precisely. And I mean, I know it's a challenge. I'm a parent as well, but you know, it, it's not a really effective approach from, for several different reasons to say, you know, to cut young people off from technology. I mean, it's so embedded in everything that, you know, they do, we do. It's part of their learning. It's part of their growing. Um, and so we, again, we just really emphasize not using, uh, you know, not taking a punishment forward approach. So not, um, you know, clawing back technology when things go mm-hmm. sideways, but taking an empowerment approach. So, Certainly having rules in the home about how we manage and mitigate technology, including you know, when we use technology, when we don't, the kinds of things we do online, the kinds of interactions we have, the kinds of content we're engaging with, but allowing young people to have a say in that rule setting. You know, Our research also shows that especially with teens and tweens, when they are a part of that rule setting, they're far more likely to embrace those rules and follow them. The uh, report, The Young Canadians in a Wireless World Phase, Four Trends and Recommendations. You can check it out by going to uh, mediasmarts.ca. Uh, Dr. Kara uh, Brisson-Boyven, Director of Research at Media Smarts, has been my guest uh, joining me from Amherstburg. Thank you for this. My pleasure. Thanks. For recent high school grads, preparing for college or university can be kind of stressful. Shaliza back is with that story. Well, school's out for the kids here in York Region, but many high school grads will be preparing for their post-secondary life this summer. It can be quite an adjustment, and joining me with some tips is Professor Thomas Klassen from York University. How are you? Great. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much for joining me. Now, you've got some tips and tricks, and you're also a co-author on a book that should hopefully be helping some students headed into their next level of academia. We'll get into that in a second, but what do you feel is the biggest adjustment uh, for students making between high school and post-secondary life? It is a very big adjustment, and there's lots of new stuff that happens at university. You don't have your parents there. You're independent. You you make your own choices, and uh, sometimes they work out great. Sometimes they don't, and then you've got to deal with that. You're paying for your for your education, or somebody is. That adds extra stress, and you're with a new group of people who you've never met before. Probably they're all smart, just like you are. And the expectations tend to be quite different from high school. Definitely different. And I feel like you're in a, such a large pool. You know, you're used to 
a, a small circle in high school. And now I feel like you're realizing that the world is so much bigger than you thought it was. It is. And it's bigger because you're exposed to more people, to more ideas. If you're going to, say, a big university, there, there are 50,000 students there. You know, that's like an entire, entire city almost. And so the first few weeks in particular, you're often quite lost. You don't know where you're going. You don't know where you're coming. You don't know what the professors have been talking about. Fortunately, it does become easier. Yes, I, I can definitely speak to that. I myself went to York U and when I tell you I got so lost on campus my first day, it doesn't matter how many like pre-orientation things you do or campus tours or whatever, when you're walking around by yourself, it can be pretty nerve wracking. It is, and but that's part of the experience. And if you understand that that's going to happen and yeah, you know, I'm going to be pretty lost for the first few weeks, you know, then you accept that and you say, hey, great, I'm lost, I'll ask, I'll figure it out. Yeah, and that is so much of what post-secondary life is. You're figuring it out, not only yourself, but your studies, where you want to go. And you co-wrote this book called How to Succeed at University. Tell us about the book. The book is trying to give some tips to students because Every year, we tend to see the same kinds of things happening. So I thought, well, you know, let's put it on paper with my co-author and hopefully it'll avoid some of the stress and some of the, well, the mistakes or missteps. And it's available for free, so there's no charge. It really takes you from the first day of school right to the end of your four years and tries to tell you what professors are looking for because you don't know that when you start and often it takes a year or two to figure out oh, okay well this is what this is all about and you mentioned that you noticed a lot of students making the same i guess mistakes in their first year can you tell us what some of those things are well i think the biggest and i don't want to call it a mistake but something that many students they go into university because they've been told by their parents, you know, that this is important, or by their friends because all their friends are going. And then they figure, well, you know, this is my chance to get prepared to make a lot of money. And often parents, quite rightly, are saying, well, you know, you're going to graduate and then you'll have to be employed. And then they end up in the wrong program. They end up in a program in first year and they say, this is so awful. You know, I hate every minute of it. I'm not happy here. I'm not doing well because I don't care about what I'm learning. That isn't where my interest is. So in the book, we stress that if you want to succeed at university and also succeed after university, you've got to go where your passion is, not where you think the money is or where you think your parents want you to go. I think it's interesting that you bring that up because, you know, we often hear if you're doing what you love, then it doesn't feel like work, right? But sometimes it's it's a very, it's a gray area and you don't really know how to navigate through that. So what would be some tips that you have for students who maybe aren't sure where exactly they want to end up after these four years? Right. And that's pretty common. And often students, when they start university, they don't know 
I mean, there's so many programs, you know, there are thousands of programs at York University. Which one is the best one for you? My advice is go with your passion. Don't follow the crowd. Don't follow where you think your parents want you. Don't go where you think the money is. If you like something, you'll be successful in it. And honestly, you don't know when you start university, you don't know what you're going to be doing when you graduate. Very few students, except if you're in a professional program, very few students have any idea where they'll be employed after four years. So the advice is, don't worry about it. That is the best advice. I think that's the best advice that you could give. And since a lot of students are using this summer to get prepared, what do you think are the best ways for them to get prepared mentally? And what things do they need to have in order for a successful first year or not even successful, but just a stress-free first year? I think that's the key is for it not to be overly stressful, for it to be fun. Because if it's fun, you want to to continue and go back. Uh, so the best preparation is, I think, speak to people who've been there, like, you know, speak to people. And it's pretty easy on social media now to find people in the program that you're going to start in September. Do some basic preparation because you don't want to start off by in the first week saying, you know, where's where do I get books? You know, where do I park? Where do I go? So if the campus is close, head over, walk. The university campuses are beautiful in the summer, quiet, you can explore, figure stuff out. So then when you do start your classes or, or you go to orientation, it's not like, wow, I've never been here. This is all new. You've got some idea what to expect. That's amazing. Those are really some great tips. And I feel like it's calming for a lot of people because I know the nerves and the emotions are really, really running high uh, headed into a new chapter of your life. And as I mentioned, you are the co-author of the book, How to Succeed at University. And you mentioned that it's free. So where can we get our hands on it? If you type in that book in any web search, it'll pop up. Don't pay for it. Go for the free version. Amazing. Professor Thomas Klassen from York University, thank you for all the tips and we wish everybody who's headed into a new chapter in September the best of luck. It will be awesome. Next, a program for children started during the pandemic is still going strong. Glenn Perkins takes a story walk. The program is aimed at parents or caregivers with young children. It combines the love of reading and experiencing nature. Margie Singleton is the CEO of Vaughan Public Library, and she told me all about the Story Walk program. It's a program where Vaughan Public Library contacts a publisher, and we get permission to take a book apart and get it printed onto boards, which are two pages from the book on each board. Then these boards, we work with our friends in parks, forestry, and horticulture at the city. And these boards are attached to trees, either in forest, on a trail, or along an urban park. The idea is that a family gets together and they go for a walk outside and they read the story as they walk. 
There's no QR code to scan. It's at the actual pages of the book that are laminated and posted on these boards. It's a super thing to promote literacy, to get people to enjoy the city parks, and to get people, families to do things, or groups of people to do things together outside. It's a great way to get the family together. What kind of stories are they discovering? Well, all of the stories are geared at younger children, so they are they are all picture books. So, you know, they're the intended audience of a picture book is a child you hold in your knee, so, you know, two to five. But the stories are of interest to everyone. And they range from, um, uh, one is a collection of short poems about nature. One is an indigenous story that's uh, about a, a amicus is a beaver, and it talks about the indigenous stories associated around the, the beaver. Last year, he, we had one that was called Pride Puppy. It was about a dog that goes to the pride parade. So it was promoting pride in a um, in just a regular setting. But most of them are, are just lovely stories that are fun to read together. This isn't the first time for the Storywalk program. What has the reaction been in the past? People love them. Uh, we've had Story Walks in place at the Courtright Centre since June 2017. And right now we have two there also, and we've had one at the McMichael. But we started during the pandemic in 2021 that we put them in the parks around the city, and we put one in each area of the city. So since 2021, this is our third year, then placing them in five different parks around the city. We wanted to make it convenient for families to access. Um, so some of them are just a, maybe a short bike ride or a short walk from home. Something like the one at Sugarbush uh, Heritage Park. It's a beautiful wooded area that you walk through. So they're not new in Vaughan, but they're newer, but they really gained momentum during the pandemic when people were looking for things to do outside and we were helping them find something terrific to do. We have become a very high-tech society, and this seems the complete opposite. What is it, do you think, that, that's making it so popular and, and that families are coming out? Well, I think part of it is because you're not scanning a QR code and carrying a phone with you, and then you get a call or a text and you get distracted. Do you know what? It's, it's just a simple walk outdoors, and to see the joy on the kids' faces as they run and they discover the next page of the book. I think they've been so well-received because people see the joy in the children's faces and as the discovery uh, element of the stories. I think that's probably what it is. You know, we could have done something with QR codes that you scanned, but we, we wanted this to be just basic, pure enjoyment. Going back to the roots. Yes, you bet. So just tell me again the locations where we can find the Story Walk program. Well, right now there are two at the Courtright Center. There's one at Mackenzie Glen District Park, uh, and the, the story that's there is called Friends for Real. It's a fun story. There's one at North Johnson District Park. It's Sometimes I Feel Like a River. That's the one that is the uh, short nature poems, and they're beautifully illustrated. At Lawford Park, there's one that's called Pink is for Everyone. And uh, Sugarbush Heritage Park is where the Indigenous story is. And the final one in the, in the municipal park is at Moretta Payne Park, and that's in the Concord area. And it's the most magnificent idea it is. That's the one that's over there. Five different city parks and then at the Courtright Conservation Area. And people can just come anytime. 
You bet. Anytime. Margie Singleton, CEO of Vaughan Public Library, thank you for joining us on The Feed. It is my pleasure. I hope you have an opportunity to get out yourself and enjoy one of these. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. The Tween Girls Hockey League in this next story may be sidelined simply due to a lack of ice time. Jim Lang with the explanation. Well, hockey for girls is always a difficult proposition across Canada, especially for a certain age group. Tween girls and their opportunities are getting fewer and fewer, but someone's trying to do something about it. A passionate hockey mom, a passionate woman with about hockey herself. She plays it, she lives it, and she walks the walks and talks the talk. She's Amy Lasky joining us on the feed today. Amy, how are you? I'm okay, thank you. How are you? Good. You brought this story to our attention, and I was kind of shocked by the numbers and what's happening to tween girls in Toronto, in the GTHA, in Canada, and the numbers uh, are quite shocking. One in three girls drop out of sport during their adolescence years um, versus one in ten boys. Why is that? You know, I think there's a number of factors, and there's been tons of research done on um, both the factors that cause girls to drop out of sport and also some of the ways to keep girls engaged and get even more girls engaged in sport um, during their tween and teen years. So I think some of them have to do with just um, opportunities for play. In addition to that, mm-hmm. it's the what girls are looking for when they're playing sports. They're looking for things like social connection. Sometimes they're not as into competition. They're into more, um, you know, skills getting better and things like that. Um, having, you know, they say you, if you see it, you can be it. So having female mentors and coaches uh, is another thing. And then just general body image issues uh, around those years. Interesting. And that's one of the big reasons, the driving force behind your brainchild, the Tween Girls Hockey League, which I think is brilliant for girls aged 7 to 15. I know it started in October 2021. Just explain to the listeners its genesis and how far it's grown in just a few short years. Yeah, sure thing. We definitely um, kind of uh, tapped on on a on a an unmet need. And uh, it's because I went to look for hockey opportunities following the pandemic for my two uh, two of my tween girls who wanted to play. And what they wanted to do was play hockey, um, but not have it take over their lives. So we wanted to look for something once a week, not on the weekend. That was a combination of skills and drills and gameplay. And I looked far and wide throughout the um, greater Toronto area and couldn't find um, a league that, that kind of checked those boxes. So I started my own league. Uh, we started that first year with about 15 kids at the start of the season and grew to 40, which was our maximum uh, at the end of the season. And uh, yeah, our league plays once a week. We have professional coaches and uh, the kids The kids have gone from barely skating to really um, playing some great hockey and just having a really fun time. Not the, just the kids themselves. But what kind of feedback are you getting from the parents of the impact this is having on their kids are making this tween girls hockey league? The parents have been overwhelmed and surprised, quite frankly, with um, how much their girls have improved. Um, The girls, some of them at the start were quite nervous. Mm -hmm. But because we had such a welcoming environment, and it's a multi-agent, so all those girls are on the ice at the same time. Pardon me. The younger girls or the less experienced girls see the girls who who have come quite far. 
um, and they look up to them, they teach one another, and they show them what can be done, and and they set their minds to it, and they go out, go out and do it. Speaking with Amy Lasky, the brainchild behind the Tween Girls Hockey League, providing opportunities for tween girls between 7 and 15 to play hockey. And one of the things you brought up is something my wife and I had to deal with. We had one daughter in gymnastics, one in competitive swimming, and they got to an age where it became too much to do it that many days a week and keep their academics up and their social life. And the fact that it's one day a week for these girls to play hockey, then there's that good life-work-school balance for them. Exactly. So this is, this is, you know, I feel there's a lot of pressure as a parent to get your kid to do more and better at more competitive levels. But oftentimes kids just want to do stuff, have fun, feel that sense of accomplishment and, and improvement uh, week over week. But again, not have it kind of take over their lives. And this really, um, really solved that problem. And the kids just come, they work hard for two hours, they laugh a lot, they fall a lot, um, they have a really good time. Uh, and then that's their hobby for the week, and they love it. Oh, I think that one of the things for me as a, a guy in his 50s who still plays with his buddies, what I love about this, Amy, is you're planting the seed to these tween girls about, hey, you can play hockey once a week and love it, and they could be playing it for decades from now and just keep showing that love for the sport and keep spreading the word of throughout their adulthood. Exactly. So I only started to play myself as an adult, and that's exactly what I do now. Um, ultimately, what... My hope is for my girls and, and all the girls in the Tween Girls Hockey League is that they can play hockey. It can be a source of fun and stress relief and friendship um, as they grow. And uh, all being well, they'll be playing well beyond our ages and, uh, and you know, continuing to love the sport. I, I could not be more impressed and more excited about this whole concept. Amy, for people who are interested to want to be part of it, want to get involved with it, anything, how can they get involved in it? What's the best way to get a hold of you or get a hold of the Tween Girls Hockey League? Sure thing. They can log on to our website, which is TGHL, so Tween Girls Hockey League, tghl.squarespace.com. And we have a form on there to fill out when uh, when we'll start registration. They'll be contacted. That's awesome. And and I, I, one thing I just wanted to add before we finish up, is there one rink that you play at, or do you have to bounce around to different rinks for the girls? Well, we've, um, we have played at one, one rink for the past couple of years. We're now on a quest to... Um, or to kind of clamor our way into city ice mm. um, because it's quite difficult. Ice is at a, a you know at a premium here um, in, where we are in, in North York in Toronto, um, but it is everywhere. I think it's just really hard to get ice time, and so we're really trying to uh, make the case for our girls to um, have secure ice time through through the city. So, okay, hopefully. Have that confirmed soon. All right. All you city officials out there listening, help Amy and help these tween girls play hockey and keep the level hockey going and hook them up with some ice time. Amy, thank you so much for doing this. Tween Girls Hockey League, TGHL, Squarespace.com? Yeah, TGHL.Squarespace.com. TGHL.Squarespace.com. Doing great work, Amy. Thank you so much for what you're doing for Hockey in Canada and helping these tween girls. It's much appreciated. Thank you so much. Have a great day. If you missed any part of the feed, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you so much for listening.